you were listening to the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. Red Hill Church is a gospel-centered, missional church in the Edwardsville Glen Carbon community of the St. Louis Metro East. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. Okay, Genesis chapter 3 says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you, can, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat, eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God said, asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming, whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Right on. Thanks so much, Sarah. Hands-free again. I'm hands-free. Who knows what kind of mayhem we're going to get into this morning. Uh, no, I'm, uh, I'm glad to be here with you. Uh, it's the first Sunday of the month, so I want to invite you to check in on Facebook at Red Hill. Just as a reminder, on the first Sunday, we check in just to let our friends and family know that we're part of a faith family. So it's an easy way for you to maybe introduce that idea to your friends and family 
So everybody can get your phone out. You can take a picture of yourself or of your row or of somebody else and be like, they're here and I'm with them. Uh, you can sneak a picture if you want to. I don't care. You take a picture of me if that sounds better to you. If you need somebody ugly on your feet, I'm available for all kinds of uh, modeling uh, opportunities in that front. Um, somebody amen that? Did I hear someone amen that? It's fine. Uh, I'm already married. I don't need to impress any of you. I, I got, like, I, I went to a conference uh, a week or two ago, and I wore basically this, where most people were wearing suits and ties, and I was like, I'm at the church that I want to be at, I have the job that I want to have, I'm married to the person that I want to be married to. What's left for me to prove to anybody? Why do I need anybody's approval? Or for them to think, wow, he's really, you know, he's really something. All the people that I really want uh, to love me already love me. And uh, everybody else can make their own decisions because I'm pretty content with the life that God's given me. It's pretty good. Um, we're, we're preaching through the book of Genesis this year. I was talking to uh, one of our uh, sponsoring, supporting churches, First Light, about their sermon series. I'm going to be out there in a few weeks to preach for their WOW weekend. They do one Sunday every year where they collect a missions offering that funds all the missionary work that they do for the whole year. It's a huge deal. I'm excited to do it. They said they're preaching through Genesis, and it's going to take them two years to do it. I was like, well, we're only doing it in one year. He's like, yeah, you're not probably going to take all the breaks for holidays that we're going to take. And I was thinking, like, we're actually going to take more um, because I want to give a sense of the book and give you an introduction to the book. I want us to, to get that together. We're not going to cover every single word or every single topic. And I want to encourage you to get into a gospel community and to get into a group where you talk about the things of God and you talk about God's word together, and you allow yourself to ask questions and to wonder a little bit and to think outside the box and to just be curious about it. If you don't have that, come and see me, download the Church Center app, find one of our gospel communities and go visit it. Um, today, we're in Genesis chapter three, which is the undoing of all of the good that God did. It's the beginning of the end of the beginning. It's the beginning of the unraveling of the first creation, it is temptation, choice, fall, consequences, and grace. Uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine on Facebook posted uh, this thing that was meant to be really affirming and encouraging and loving towards people who disagree with us. And, uh, and it was like one of these like, you know, colored backgrounds with just a statement on it. And it said... Um, you don't need a savior. You are okay exactly as you are. And I was like, well, if that doesn't sum up the cultural milieu, like the ethos of our culture, if that doesn't sum it up, nothing does. That you are just fine the way that you are. And I want you to know that Every conversation that you have, every question that you ask and that's asked of you, every uh, marketing campaign, every politician that does, will, or has ever lived, every single person is operating from a source of authority and from a foundational and principal belief. Everyone operates this way. Some of them are conscious of that organizing principle of thought and belief, and some are not conscious 
of how they have organized all the things that they think and believe. And most people, I genuinely believe, most people are acting in good faith. Most people are operating in a sense that is true to the foundational organizing principle of belief that they have. But we are in a war for truth. We are in a world that is warring and debating and fighting and arguing about what truth is. And I want to make it absolutely clear that what I believe and what we believe at Red Hill is that God's word is truth. It doesn't mean that every single fact that can ever be known can be found in the pages of Scripture. Scripture is not written like that. It's not written to be an encyclopedia that contains every fact that could ever be known. It's meant meant to live more like glasses, which when put on, allow us to see what is real and what is true. To teach us truth. What is truth? Your word is truth. So as we enter into Genesis chapter 3 and some language that includes snakes that can talk. We have to ask some questions like, is this all an allegory? Or is it possible that when C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and imagined talking animals, that somehow before sin, such a harmony existed in creation that people and animals could communicate with each other in a way that made a lot of sense to both of them? And we get to wonder about things like that without needing to draw a lot of conclusions. Because the point of this passage is not talking animals. The point of this passage is that God loved us enough to make us in his image. And loved us enough to put us in charge of things and give us responsibility. And loved us enough to give us community, the gift of relationships with people who are both like us in many ways and completely different from us in many ways and gave us the opportunity to demonstrate our fidelity to him, our faith in him, our trust in him. He loved us. The starting point for all sin, the starting point for all sin, whether we are conscious of it or unconscious of it, the starting point for all sin is a distortion of God's words, of God's character, or of God's goodness. The starting point for all sin is always something along the lines of what the serpent asks. Has God really said? Did God really say this? Does God really mean that? Does God have your best intentions at heart? When God said this thing, do you think he was considering your particular circumstance? Doesn't God really want you to have this? Doesn't it seem logical to believe that this thing is a good thing and therefore you can just take it for yourself. Sin is a shortcut to the good thing that God wants you to have. And what that shortcut doesn't tell you is that the whole purpose is the journey together. You are alive and you are becoming. The purpose of living is being made into the image of Jesus. 
Meaning, we have to trust the plan that God has for us as it plays out in real time. The serpent slithers up, or maybe walks up at this point because it hasn't been cursed yet. I don't really know. And it's okay to be like, who knows? Maybe, maybe it was a dinosaur that was talking to Eve. And, and then God's like, nope, you're on your belly now. And that's how dinosaurs got eradicated. I'm not making that claim from science. I'm simply saying sometimes you can read the Bible and allow yourself to go, wow, that's really weird. But it's not really the point either. So the serpent says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? In Hebrew, the conversation happens not like a question and an answer. It happens like the beginning of a question that is interrupted with an answer. Satan or the serpent or the slithering or walking or crawling or whatever thing it is is crawling up to Eve and begins a conversation and Eve interjects. She jumps in and she's like, nope, that's not actually what was said. What was said was we can eat any tree we want to except for this one tree. Oh, and also we can't touch it, which God didn't say. Has anyone ever told you that in order to be a good Christian, there are things you cannot and must not do? Long ago, you couldn't play cards. If you played cards, then you weren't a Christian. You couldn't dance. If you danced, you're not a Christian. You couldn't gamble. You couldn't go to Disney World. You couldn't watch Harry Potter. There, the list is infinite. The Pharisees themselves, some of you are like, you still better not be watching Harry Potter. <laughs> you guys, I don't, listen, this is bonus content. Here's the story of Harry Potter. There is someone marked for death. Someone else loves that marked for death person so much that they would willingly embrace the curse of death that that one marked for death might, might live and be preserved and protected from death. And that one who is protected from death then willingly lays down his life that his friends might also live. I'm not trying to start anything. I'm simply saying... Every story that deeply resonates inside of us is probably a retelling of the gospel. There's a reason that those stories deeply resonate with us. Temptation. Temptation works when it latches onto something that your heart already wants. That's why temptation works. Temptation doesn't live out there. There, there is a belief it, uh, fundamental Christianity, fundamentalism, I mean, in Christianity, which doesn't have hardly any fun in it at all, by the way. It should be called non-fundamentalism Christianity, <laughs> believes that we're in a war with the culture around us, and the response to that war is to circle the wagons and protect ourselves against the enemy that's out there. But the enemy doesn't live out there. The enemy lives in here. Temptation latches on to what's already living inside of you. 
Temptation latches onto a desire that is already living inside of you. James wrote to the diaspora, the scattered Christians that were scattered in the Acts 8-1 persecution that broke out after Stephen is stoned. All the Christians scattered all over the world. James writes a letter to them and he says, when someone's being tempted, this is James 1, 13 through 15, when somebody's being tempted, don't ever say God is tempting me because God doesn't tempt you. God created a good world, a very good community. God created a harmonious place where everything worked and everybody loved each other. And we broke it with sin. Don't say God is tempting you. Instead, each one is tempted when he's dragged away and enticed by his own evil desires. Your own evil desires. And if we could get a hold of this truth, I think it would transform how we deal with sinful people and how we deal with sinners who have hurt us. The problem is inside of all of us. So the things that are tempting to you may or may not be tempting to me because I'm different from you. And it's why it's very easy for us to keep score and to measure what we're tempted by versus what you're tempted by. And to measure our success against temptation versus your success against temptation. We need a savior. We need some help. Temptation doesn't make a sin. It just wakes up desire inside of us. We're in a worship war. Where will we bend the knee? We're going to bend the knee. You're going to bend the knee. And you're like, I'm not bending the knee to anybody. You have bent the knee to your own self. By the way, how's that New Year's resolution working out for you, little G God? How are you at making yourself happy? How, How does the world around you look? Peaceful and content? Or more and more chaotic. When Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, he said this really profound thing. He said, he said, when you pray, you should say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven, which means that heaven is just another name for the place where God's will is done immediately, perfectly, and perpetually. That's what paradise is. Paradise is when God gets his way and he puts all rebellion to an end. Well, you know how it works. The tempter slithers up. You're not really going to die. The consequences aren't real. It won't really be that bad. And, and the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. <laughs> the serpent says, your eyes will be opened. And the Hebrew says that when she looked at it, she looked at it with lusty eyes. There's all this play on words that happens that's really pretty beautiful and, and tragic. Your eyes are going to be opened. Then you're going to become like God. And Eve looks at it with lust-filled eyes. 
I want to take for myself that thing which God has already promised to give me. Instead of trusting his plan and his purposes in my life, I'm going to take the shortcut and take for myself what I think God might, give to, might not give to me. Should I wait? And the man's with her and he eats. And it says in verse 7 that then the eyes of both of them were opened. Your eyes will be opened with lustful eyes. They saw it and with lust they took it. And then the result is that their eyes actually are opened. <sighs> Lust-filled eyes can be fed, but they can never be satisfied. Eyes that lust can be fed, but they can never be satisfied. And if they are fed, their desire for food grows. In other words, that thing that you feed gets stronger and begins to be more and more and more consuming. Proverbs 27, 20 says, people's eyes are never satisfied. I, uh, I debated about sharing some of this stuff because it's kind of sensitive. We have kids ministry today, so it's a little easier to talk about. But the scripture says that their eyes are open and they knew they were naked. And their response to that moment is to sow fig leaves for themselves. The, the first consequence of sin is Adam and Eve beginning to hide from one another. A, a break in the peaceful, harmonious, life-giving community. It now became something to be afraid of. The result of that lust caused a division between them. And uh, we probably don't talk about this enough. But I wanted to share some statistics and some information about pornography. Because I think it's a, an absolute curse on our culture. It's something I've struggled with in my life. And if um, current statistics are true, then something like 9 out of 10 men struggle with it or have struggled with it and something like six out of ten women have struggled with it or do struggle with it and one of the most disturbing factors uh, one of the most disturbing uh, pieces of research that I found was that young women ages 13 to 15 believe that pornography is a place where they can discover how to please a man in a sexual way uh, porn sites th this is from internet safety 101 uh, porn sites attract more visitors each month than Amazon, Netflix, or Twitter. Excuse me, I misstated. Porn sites attract more visitors each month than Amazon, Netflix, and Twitter combined. 30% of all internet content is pornography. 88% of pornography contains violence against women or children. From 2005 to 2013, quite a while ago, right, Searches for teen porn tripled from 167,000 to 500,000 per day. On January 28th, uh, Pornhub's former CEO and owner 
said that there could be 1.8 million unverified user-generated sex videos on the site, many of which would contain illegal uh, content. In uncovered messages published by the court in California, it was shown that if they implemented standards that were being imposed upon them, they would only get about 2,000 video uploads per day. This was after their purge of 10 million videos following Nick Kristoff's article, Children of Pornhub, that exposed them for complicity in mass sexual crime. And the CEO lamented that moving forward, their uploads would decline to 2,000 per day, down from 25,000 per day. The age and consent of those in the videos is not verified. Only the uploader is verified. If 2,000 videos were uploaded every day for three years and 44 days, that equals 2,278,000 videos. 80% of them would be unverified. So potentially 1.8 million unverified and potentially illegal videos would be live on Pornhub today if it's 27, or excuse me, if it's 25,000 videos daily. Over that same time, it's close to 30 million videos. The Senate Judiciary Committee is meeting right now with big tech, asking them about moderators on the site and the damages that their sites can cause, like Facebook and Snapchat, TikTok, and uh, some of those places. So, so Meta has 4, 000, uh, excuse me, 40,000 moderators, 40,000 moderators for their site. Um, X, formerly known as Twitter, and still Twitter.com, I don't, I don't get whatever. They have 2,300 moderators. TikTok has 40,000 moderators. Snapchat has 2,000 moderators. MindGeek, which is the parent company for Pornhub and various other sites, a lot of other sites, has 30 moderators. And they recently hosted a conference where they claimed to receive, the whole conference was predicated on their success at handling more than 2 billion messages every day. Creation was broken. A rift was created. Shame and fear was created. God's good gift was wickedly distorted. The cause of that, we, we will not know the cause of that until we get to heaven. And when we know all that was supposed to be and all that actually was, I think there's no force other than an omnipotent God who'd be able to wipe the tears from our eyes. If you're engaging with pornography, you are engaging in sexual trafficking, human trafficking. You're engaging in the abuse of women and children. You're doing damage to your own soul. But also... You're just a fellow struggler. I was thinking this week uh, a lot about confession. And I want to talk next about how God handles it versus how we handle it. But I was, I was just like asking myself, like allowing myself to just sort of create some elbow room as I think about the topics that are covered in the text. And, and I, was, I was wondering why it is that Alcoholics Anonymous is able to create a culture of confession that the church is not able to create? What is it about their model 
that allows people to come in and feel as though they're okay to share their shame. And, and I, this is not research. This is just my mind kind of wandering and roaming around inside of it. But, but I think I, I tapped into something in my own head that at least put things in order for me. And, and here's what it was. Everybody who is there is trying to not be an alcoholic anymore. Everybody who is there has come <laughs> freely confessing that they struggle and understanding the power that that struggle has in their own lives. And, and that made me think about what the culture of our church should be striving to be like. And, and what would look different about the way that we handle each other's sin, even when it's a betrayal against one another, what would look different if we were able to look at it in a way that says, you're free to confess because our aim together is to fight sin and become more like Jesus. In other words, if we could be just a little bit more like Jesus, who as he's being crucified, as his hands and feet are being nailed to a wooden tree, to be able to say, they don't know what they're doing to the people who've wounded me, to the people who've betrayed you, to the people who have caused deep, seemingly unendurable pain in our lives to be able to say, they don't know what they're doing. To be able to enter into a place and a space in a community where we say, we can struggle against that together. We can fight against that together. And there's pain and there's consequences, but we can fight it together. So they make loincloths from fig leaves. I don't know what a fig leaf looks like, but I probably would have gone sycamore if you're going leaves. That's called a little bit of levity back into the sermon after some heavy stuff. And then it says in verse 8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is the most human reaction to being caught that exists. There's nothing more natural to us when we're caught than hiding. It's just what we do. You, got, you know any little kids, you catch them in a lie, boom, hands over the face. <laughs> What are they doing? They're doing the same thing Adam and Eve do. Those of you who struggle with pornography, delete your history. You're doing the same thing Adam and Eve do. Hiding. That's what they do. They duck into the trees and they hide. They hide because they're afraid. Humanity's response to sin. Hide from each other. Hide from God, be afraid, and then pass the buck. Right? That's what we do. God, his response to sin, oh, these people have betrayed me. They've broken fellowship with me. They've broken covenant with me. They are the ones who broke it. What does God do in response to sin? God goes to sinful people. 
God goes to the people who sinned against him. When we say at Red Hill, send the best, you should know that that is modeled after God's own activity. Send the best. God doesn't send an angel over to deal with this. God doesn't send a really cool-looking animal over to deal with this. God doesn't, like, create a social media platform and post something on it and tag them. God goes to the sinful people. God himself goes to them. And when he gets there, what does he do? He asks questions. I love questions. I love asking the right question. I like asking questions that make people really uncomfortable. I like awkward questions. If I see you, a single person, sitting by someone of the opposite sex, I'm probably going to be like, hey, what do you got going on here? Is it serious? We talking marriage? Are we just dating? Are we just getting to know each other? Where are we at in this process? And everybody's like, dude, you are making me so uncomfortable. And I'm like, guess what? You're already uncomfortable. I'm just allowing you to give it a little bit of oxygen. Let that uncomfortableness get out there. Let it breathe a little bit. Give it some walking around money and let's see what happens. I love a good question. A question is an invitation to greater or to renewed intimacy. Adam and Eve sin. God comes to where they are in, in the cool of the evening, when the gentle breeze is blowing in the evening. What a nice added touch in Genesis. It's just the right moment in the evening when everything is peaceful and supposed to be peaceful and good and right. And the Lord God comes walking up and God doesn't say, Zap them all. You know, he, doesn't, he doesn't bring a whammo down. He says, where are you? And I think it's worth asking yourself, why would God ask that question? Because he already knows where they are. Playing hide and seek with a God who is all-knowing, all-seeing, and omnipresent is a losing game. But God asked the question, and the reason that he asked the question is because he wants to invite Adam and Eve back into his presence. He gives you an opportunity to self-disclose. Where are you? And Adam is like, we're over here. Hmm. Um, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then God asks, who told you that you were naked? You've been naked this whole time, dude. Who told you about it? How did you figure that out? And then the third question, did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And Adam stepped up and said, God, I want to take responsibility for this. Put me in charge of all these things. You gave me this sustainer beside me. I want to be a man. I want to embrace the consequences, and I want to protect those whom I love. I'm going to engage and just see what happens because that's what a man does. And the response that Adam gives is not that at all. Not only does he blame the woman, but he actually blames God. The woman that you gave me gave me some fruit and I ate it. You know, that's the minor part. You know, that's just the, it's not that big of a deal. God does not immediately deal with this. 
I mean, I don't know. I've been in a limited metaphor capacity on God's side of this thing where you're like, hey, what, what did you do? And they pass the buck and you're like, okay, we're going to come back to that. Let's go over here and ask Eve, what's this thing that you've done? And the woman's like, the serpent, and I think there's a parenthetical note here, which is like, that you made <laughs> deceived me and I ate. <sighs> One of the consequences of sin is that we just really don't like consequences. And we do everything we can to avoid them and to avoid dealing with them. And sometimes the problem is we lament our consequences more than we lament our sin. We fail to see that consequences are an act of mercy. Because if there were no consequences, we would continue doing things that James says lead to death. God comes with questions, not accusations which is where Ted Lasso got his famous line, be curious, not judgmental. Questions are better than accusations. Questions invite someone back into relationship. And maybe you're here and you're like me and you're like, well, yeah, but don't we have to be judgmental uh, about sin? We have to be able to judge what is and is not sin. But we are not the final arbiter of righteousness. One of the things that we do in premarital counseling that Sarah and I do whenever we lead it is we talk about something that we had to learn, which is that people are really bad at fighting. And usually they keep an offense between themselves. I offend her, and so there's a thing between us. And what we end up doing in that instance is attacking each other and then apologizing for the way that we attacked each other and then moving on without dealing with the offense that lives between us. And instead, what we want to be able to do is say, that offense is going to do damage to our relationship. And so let's come side by side and let's figure out why that's so offensive and how we can prevent it from happening again. Yes, we absolutely say sin is sin, 100%. We do not get to determine what is good only God gets to determine what is good. We don't get to determine what is moral. Only God determines what is moral. We don't get to determine what is true. Only God determines what is true. And for anyone who would say, God wouldn't give me these desires if he didn't want me to act on them, the honest response is, God gave us all kinds of things that can be used for good or can be used for evil. Our desires are not ultimate. Our beliefs are not ultimate. Our perception of truth is not ultimate. God is what is ultimate. That's the organizing principle of our church, and that's the organizing principle of my life, and that's the organizing principle of the way that things actually are. And I'm a hypocrite who fails at it a lot. But that's the foundational thing for me, and I hope it is for you as well. Maybe a worthy question to discuss in our GCs tonight is, how does your response to sin differ from God's response to sin? And how does your response to sinners differ from God's response to sinners? In verses 14 through 19, we get consequences, prophecy, and death. 
If you can't get into Genesis, you can't get into anything. Just take your time and look at it. It's crazy. It's crazy, all right? It's crazy. God curses the serpent. You're more cursed than any livestock. You have to live on your belly and eat dust forever. And I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman. And I am in touch with my feminine side because I hate snakes, all right? If that's only for ladies, I'm just telling you, I got that inside of me. I'm also made in the image of God, and I feel that curse deeply. I feel the enmity. Every snake is the devil. That's in the Bible, loosely translated. Here's the prophecy. He will strike your head, and you will bite his heel. That's what the serpent is told. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. The actual translation, the closest translation I could find, says something more like this. It's Robert Alter's translation, which you can find in the resources uh, on Genesis. It says, uh, he will boot your head, and you will bite his heel. But the word for bite isn't even actually bite. It's the hissing sound a snake makes right before biting. He will boot your head. Someday, Jesus is going to boot the head of the serpent. That's the prophecy. That's really, really, really good news. He'll boot your head. You're going to bite his heel. He will boot your head. That's going to be amazing. By the way, from this moment on, humanity begins looking for the one who will finally slay the serpent. The quest for the promised serpent slayer begins. There are, I think, 11 what's called toledots in Genesis. Toledot is anytime you see, here's the genealogy, or here's the list of, or when you see such and so begets such and so begets such and so begets such and so. Genesis 2 3 has a Toledot. Genesis 5, which is Seth's lineage, has a Toledot. There are like 11 of these. And why do we get all of these? And why does Matthew kick off with a genealogy about Jesus? It's because the people of God have been looking for and longing for a Savior since this moment. When God said, someday somebody's coming who's going to undo all that's been done. That promised serpent slayer, that serpent slaying savior is coming. It's coming. So the serpent gets cursed and humanity gets cursed. I don't want to dive too deep into the curses because I've already eaten up a whole lot of my time. And there's a couple other things that I do want to talk about. But I want to say this, that the curse that's laid upon us is all the things that you're going to do are going to be painful now. And not only are you going to have painful effort, you're going to have frustrating results. You're going to have relational conflict, and you are destined to die. That's how it works now. That's what the world is like. Man, the next time that the printer won't print, the next time that the employees won't do what they're supposed to do, or that that the boss treats you wrongly the next time that the car won't fix or the crabgrass won't die, the next time that the workings of your life don't work, this is when you say Maranatha, which means come Lord Jesus, which is just another way of saying, would you please boot the head of the serpent? This world is broken and it doesn't work like it's supposed to work. Human nature doesn't work like it's supposed to work. C.S. Lewis says the law of nature says everything in nature behaves the way that it's supposed to behave. The law of human nature says none of us behave the way that we're supposed to behave. What's up with that? Sin. That's what's up with that. 
painful effort, frustrating results, relational conflict, and you're destined to die. Sounds awesome. (laughs) What if you thought about everybody is living in that? The people who've hurt you are living in that. The people who just annoy you are living in that. The people that you cannot possibly understand why they think or feel that way, they're living in that. The people who you vehemently and fundamentally disagree with, they're living in that same soup. Their experience of life is not different from your experience of life. There has never been anything that satisfies our souls because we're longing for the serpent slayer to boot the head of the snake. And until that happens, life is going to have difficulties. Jesus himself promised it, but he linked it to another promise. Don't be afraid. I've overcome the world. It's good news. You're dust. You're going to return to dust. What happens from this point forward is the unraveling of Eden. That's what happens. You're made out of dust. Glory and dust. But your experience in this life is going to be dust. The next time you read Paul talking to the church in Corinth and you hear him talking about being an earthen vessel, And we hold this this unbelievable treasure, this weight of glory, this longing for what's coming next. See it through the lens of Genesis. Made in the image of God, made out of dust. And God says, now in this life, the destiny for you in this life is to return to the dust. The writer of Hebrews says, it's appointed unto man once to die. And after that, comes judgment. Your life is going to end. Everyone who is here today, someday will not be here anymore. Every headstone that you see, everyone I've ever seen, it has a starting date and it has an ending date and it has a dash in the middle. And what you do with that dash is all that counts. It's all that matters. In verse 21, it says that God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. They sewed fig leaves to cover their shame. How does God deal with their shame? Fig leaves are going to die. You're going to have to keep covering and keep covering and keep covering. And what does God do? God, the first thing that dies, the first thing that dies is an animal that is innocent. And that innocent thing is sacrificed for those who have sinned. Can you see it? Can you see how the whole Bible is telling us the same story? It's one big message about God's desperate love for sinful people and his willingness to sacrifice that they might live, that they might be covered, that they might not have to be afraid. Something innocent had to die so that they could be clothed. And then the Lord God 
said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out. This is humanity. Drove us out and stationed a cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Why keep humanity from the tree of life? Because God did not want you and I to live in an endlessly sinful state. That is not his plan for us. And so he takes a severe mercy and applies it to our situation and says, I'm driving you away from this thing. If you look at Revelation, you see some cool stuff about the tree of life in the new heaven and the new earth and how we get to have it and be part of it, and be satisfied by it, and it's amazing. But you are not destined to live forever as you are right now. That's not God's plan, which is why Adam and Eve are pushed away from it. Why keep them from the tree of life? Because God did not want them to live in an endlessly sinful state. Which, by the way, sort of colors the information in John 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says to the teacher of all Israel, you must be born again. You have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, dude, that's really confusing because I'm a full-grown man and I'm pretty sure my mom doesn't want any of that. And Jesus says, I'm not talking about another physical birth. I'm, you know, I'm paraphrasing in Raiden translation. I'm not talking about another physical birth. I'm talking about a birth into a different kind of life. And when you read the New Testament and you read about new life in Christ and you see Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 5 talking about us being a new creation in Christ. It might be 2 Corinthians. My mind's a little fuzzy right now. But talking about us being a new creation we're, we're, some, we're made new. In other words, when we give our lives to Jesus, he doesn't give us a second chance at the old life. This, this life that I have is destined to go back to the dirt. But he's offered me a new life, a whole different life. Which is why when we're baptized, we say, you're buried with Christ. And you're raised to walk in newness of life, in a new life. A whole new life is given to us. It's totally different. No longer is my life dominated, controlled, and absorbed only by sinful desires. But now I've been given the gift of his Holy Spirit. This is the plan. You must be born again. Sin causes the unraveling of all the good and the very good of creation. And what you're going to see in Genesis is Adam and Eve thrust out of the garden. By the way, the cherubim does not look like a precious moments doll. All right? It's a crazy looking, wild looking, angelic thing. What does it look like? I don't know. All I know is this, it's got a flaming, whirling, twirling sword to guard a place that God is like, nobody better ever get back there ever again in this physical form, right? It's going to be something really terrifying. When angels show up, everybody's like, ah, and the angel always says, don't be afraid. I'm not here to kill you. 
That's, that's always what happens when angels show up. Not like, aw. It's ah, Not, aw. Yeah, all right, precious moments are fine. Whatever, I don't care. But they're not real. Adam and Eve are thrust out. Cain then is further thrust out. Then everybody moves further and further away from God's presence. Then it's not until Exodus that we get the information that God's going to let people even know what his name is. We go further and further and further away from Eden. But when we give our lives to Christ and become a new creation, we begin a whole new life that has a whole new journey. In Revelations chapter 21, I want to read you the end of the story. If we can bookend the story here in Genesis 3, which isn't the first chapter of the Bible, in Revelation 21, which isn't the last chapter of the Bible, but they're pretty stinking close. And if you think of both as having a preamble and a, I don't know, postamble, whatever, then you can see something pretty important, I think. It says in chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, it'll be on the screens. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them, just like in Eden. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then one seated on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. He also said, Right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life to the one who conquers. Excuse me, the one who conquers will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. If you are thirsty this morning, he will freely give you from the waters of life. If you are broken this morning, he will freely give you the waters of life. If you are hurting and struggling this morning, he will freely give you the waters of life. The tree of life is available to all who will give themselves back to the God who made them. That's what the story is about. That's what the journey is about. And as we give ourselves back to God, we find the freedom and the joy in giving ourselves back to one another the power and the potential to have a community that gives life and love to each other can only be discovered and trusted when that community has first given itself to God. I'm gonna invite you now to consider this one question. And I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes as you consider it. You don't have to, I'm not in charge of your life, but those of you who have the courage I just want to invite you to ask, just, just consider this one question. It's the first question God ever asks of people. Where are you?
And as you think about the answer, consider the emotions that are stirred up inside of you. Probably not all that dissimilar from what Adam and Eve felt. I feel, when I answer that, I feel exposed, I feel ashamed, and I feel afraid. And those feelings are valid. But as with every feeling, with those feelings, you must consider them in light of what is true. Should I be afraid? Do I have to live with fear and shame forever? And the answer comes back, there's a God who loves you enough to cover to meet you right there in the hiding place and then to, to invite you out of it. Adam and Eve don't get off scot-free. There are consequences for sin. Your actions and my actions have consequences. That's a gift. It's not a gift we like, but it's a gift. But the sweeter gift is that when we embrace where we are and who we are, when we get honest about that, we discover not only that there are consequences, but that there's a God who still loves us and doesn't pile shame on us and doesn't make us more afraid of him, but instead says, why don't you let me carry that for you? Why don't you let me cover that for you? And how about if instead of another chance, I gave you a whole new life? And those of you who have given your lives to Christ, can I just tell you, what Jesus said about you was this. Father, those whom you have given to me, I have kept, and, and no one can take them out of my hand. In other words, your sin after giving your life to Jesus cannot cause you to need to give your life to Jesus again. He's the one who keeps it. Where are you? That's the question this morning. There's a lot of ways you can respond. I'll be available to pray. Josh will be available to pray. We've got the Lord's Supper where we remember that it wasn't just an innocent animal in Genesis that was sacrificed for a better covering. It was an innocent Jesus that was sacrificed as a payment for our sins. And we're making a declaration. That's what happened there. That's why it's for people who are Christians. And that's why it's important to consider where you're at before you take it. You can pray where you are. You can fill out a connection card if you want to. Don't be afraid to ask the question. Don't be afraid of the answer. The enemy wants to keep you hiding in the bushes. God wants to undo the curse and invite you on a journey to the new heaven and the new earth and the new Eden where he once again lives face to face with us. You can respond as the Lord leads you.
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions about this message, our church, or the gospel, or if you'd like to get in touch with one of our elders, you can visit our website at www.redhill.church. Navigate to the I'm New tab and click the option for Connection Card. Filling out this online card will allow you to get in touch with us and one of our elders will follow up as soon as possible. Thanks for listening and be sure to check back next week as we continue to study and apply God's Word together.